have seen the movie Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, is that Harrison Ford? Well, no, that's Dale Hearn, but he's a dear friend, a great class member forever, and it's his birthday today. So I thought we'd put him in there instead of Harrison Ford because, frankly, I think he's a little better looking. So with that, let's go to a movie clip. See if you remember this scene. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Marion. Don't look at it, no matter what happens. I don't know if you recall that scene or not, but that is a scene where the Ark of the Covenant that's been searched for by the Nazis for its magical powers, uh, 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 Indiana Jones has been searching for it as well, and and ultimately uh, the Nazis get it first, but Indiana Jones uh, winds up with it. I don't want to spoil the movie. Actually, he doesn't. The U.S. government does, and it's locked up in Area 51 where all the UFO paraphernalia is. And so without telling you the, the details of how that happens, let me just tell you that the movie sensationalizes some things that clearly are not biblical, and yet the biblical story itself is more than befitting of a thrilling movie, hence the reason it figured in the plot line so centrally. So with that, what we're actually doing in this class right now is proceeding with a series that I call The Story on the Road to Emmaus. And in Luke 24, Jesus, for several hours, speaks with several of his disciples, and Jesus explains how the Old Testament had prophetically explained the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, we don't know with precision which stories and which uh, lessons and which uh, instructions in the Old Testament he used, but we are aware of the fact that a number of the Old Testament passages speak deliberately and exquisitely in detail about Jesus and his death on behalf of humanity. So we've got in the chapel where we're teaching these messages right now, we've got three vignettes painted on the ceiling. If you could see the ceiling, you would see this vignette. And the vignette's got the Hebrew next to it. And and what the Hebrew says is, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. And this was an instruction God gave Moses. It's in Exodus 25, and it's in the flow of the, the Israelites have been released from the bondage of Pharaoh's slavery. They have escaped Egypt. They've made it through the Red Sea. And in the wilderness, they've gotten to Mount Sinai. And Moses has gone up on the mountain while the people in camp below. And Moses is receiving God's instruction. And part of what God instructs Moses to do is to build a a court, a tabernacle, a a tent uh, with a courtyard that's going to be a central place of worship. And in addition to that, he tells Moses that Moses is to build certain pieces of furniture. 
and that it's to be built exactly as God uh, uh, explains in exquisite detail. And among that furniture is an ark, the ark of the covenant. And so we've got that uh, painted in the ceiling. We've also got painted in the ceiling after, hundreds of years later, after Israel has settled into the promised land. A decision is made by Solomon to build an official temple. No longer the tents, no longer the courtyard that that had been there hundreds of years before and no doubt subject to decay and, and all sorts of problems, but a permanent temple or house that would hold the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, and the other places that were there. Uh, by God's specification. A third vignette we've got painted on the ceiling is actually from a passage from the prophet Isaiah. So Moses, figure that Exodus, I'm a late date Exodus guy, so figure the mid-1200 BC range. You've got Solomon building the temple, probably in the 800 BC range. And then you've got Isaiah prophesying a hundred plus years later. And in Isaiah's prophecy, he's got a passage where he has an encounter with God in God's heavenly throne. It's Isaiah chapter chapter 6. And it begins, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. Now, all three of those vignettes come into play as we talk about the Ark of the Covenant this morning. So we're going to use scripture rather than Indiana Jones, uh, with all due respect to Indiana Jones, but we want to do three things as we go through this. Uh, We want to, number one, explain the Ark of the Covenant so that we understand what it is. And then number two, we want to see Jesus as the ark speaks to the Messiah. And then we don't want to leave it there because head knowledge is marvelous, but it's not an end result that any of us should strive for. We want to know what difference does it make to us? Why do we care? The so what question. So if that's the course before us over the next 30 minutes or so, let's start with explaining the ark of the covenant. Now, the explanation for the ark comes from uh, several places in the Old Testament, but Exodus 25 is the first place we find it. And in Exodus 25, if we can flip over to the Elmo, we will see, or Ipivo, we will see here in Exodus 25 the following instructions. God said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. Now, that's actually important because what's going to be built here is something that's being built by God's instruction, but it's from the people. Every man whose heart moves him, you'll receive the contribution. And and we're going to need gold, silver, bronze. We're going to need these different kinds of yarns and linen. We're going to need goat's hair and ram skins and goat skins. We're going to need acacia wood. Acacia is a type of a willow tree. We're going to need acacia wood. We're going to need some oil and spices and incense, some 
onyx and other stones. We're going to need some, uh, uh, make some ephod, an ephod and the breast piece out of it. And then let them make me a sanctuary. That's the tenting part that we were talking about or that I referenced earlier. The sanctuary would, would have been the tenting in the courtyard that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, the tent, and all its furniture, which includes the Ark of the Covenant, so shall you make it. And then it begins to tell us the Ark of the Covenant. And so here we have, make it of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half will be its length. Overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside. Uh, you'll make uh, rings, uh, four rings. You'll, you'll have poles to carry it. And in it, you're going to put the ark of the testimony that I'll give you. Um, oh, no, the rings go into the ark of the testimony. Excuse me. Then you're going to make a mercy seat. Now, that's a very important word. You want to remember that as we go through this. Of pure gold. It's going to also be two and a half cubits. Make two cherubim of gold. And it's going to be hammered work. And they're going to be on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on one end, one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you'll make the cherubim with its two ends. And the cherubim will spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. As they face one another... And toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you'll put the testimony I told you. There I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So, that's the explanation in Scripture. And we need to see that this is a precise instruction. If we can get the... There we go. If this is a precise instruction. If we can go to the PowerPoint for me, Brent, instead of the IPVO. Thank you. God says exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so you shall make it. And so that's what we've got. Now, here is a replica. This replica is not full size. So the original was two and a half cubits. You say, how big's a cubit? Well, this is kind of funny. A cubit is the measurement from the bend in your elbow to the tip of your hand, which means a cubit is different on my arm than it is on my wife, Becky. It's just the difference in arm size. So we don't have a knowledge of to the millimeter what it would be. But if you take an average arm size, we're looking at about 18 inches for a cubit. So we've got the real arc would have been two and a half cubits. That means that it would have been about 45 inches across. We're about a foot and a half shy. This is two-thirds of the size. Now, it's got the, the, the 
the supports and the poles. It's got the molding and the trim. It's in gold. And this lid is the mercy seat. I'm going to get Coach Max to help me here for a minute. Coach Max, do you mind coming? We don't have really people here, but, but some folks come in to help do some things, and Coach Max is here. Let's take this lid off. So if we hold this lid, and uh, Brent's able to get a good shot of it there, and maybe zoom in a little bit. These are the cherubim. This lid is called the mercy seat. This is the lid that goes on top. And if we turn it this way, coach, you'll see the way these seraphim are, or cherubim, excuse me, the way these cherubim are laid out with their wings, it's like there's a seat here. And the, and, and, and the idea being that this is a throne of sorts and on the cherubim, God could sit. Now, this mercy seat is very important. We'll put it back. Thank you, coach. And, and I want to get it up on the PowerPoint because I want to explain a couple of things for you. First of all, you may be bothered by the fact that I'm calling the Ark of the Covenant furniture. Don't be. So the Hebrew word that's used for Ark here is the word Aaron. And what it means is just a chest. This is a storage chest. It's like uh, uh, when we were young... Uh, my mom had, we called it the toy chest. And inside the toy chest were all of my toys. And so they just fit in this toy chest. And it was, I didn't understand till later, and this is free advice for those of you who have your kids at home right now with all of this corona stuff going on. When I would go to mom and say I was bored, mom would instruct me I had to go clean out my toy chest. And I would just think that's miserable. Why do I have to clean out anything? But she said it, so I would have to, and I'd go open the toy chest, and I'd start taking the things out. And, of course, I was captivated in playing with all of those toys for the next three hours, you know, and then I'd just throw them all back in there because it'd be time to eat. So it was a very convenient way to get me distracted from my, my boredom. But that's what this is. It's not a toy chest, but it is a chest. It is a chest for storing and carrying things. Inside the chest went a number of items, three to be precise. Uh, Aaron's staff went inside the chest. And so you could take Aaron's staff, and, and it was the one that had butted, and put it inside the chest. And there it goes. In addition, inside the chest, and this is very important, went the Ten Commandments. Now, I brought a mock-up of five of them. This would be the, as uh, the Ten Commandments are called the Decalogue. So I walked in with this, and Brent Johnson said to me, is that the Half-a-Logue? Because it's only half of them. Um, but uh, ten being the, the word for, Deca being the word for ten. The Ten Commandments that are written on stone were to go inside, and then a golden jar of manna was to go inside. And that's what we were to have inside here. So inside the, the, the chest go those various things. Now, if that's inside the chest, let me tell you about the mercy seat and let's go into a little more detail on it. The mercy seat is, um, if you are Jewish, 
you are familiar with the term Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur means atonement. Yom Kippur is one of the holiest days in Judaism. It is a day of, of atonement uh, that projects backwards but also into the next year. It's got its root in the Old Testament and the instructions given to Moses. But if you think for a moment about Kippur, as in Yom Kippur, you're learning the root of the word for the mercy seat, for the covering here. So in Hebrew, the covering of this would be the Kippuret. It's Kippur, et, Kippuret. And that is the mercy seat. This word is an unusual word for many of us today, but it shouldn't be unusual. The word means, uh, at its root, if you're talking about a copair, it means a, a, a ransom. It means the price for a life. And so what you've got here in Exodus chapter 25 is an expression of how to make an atonement cover, a cover that is uh, going to have something to do with the ransom of a life. And so uh, within the framework of that, that's what they were told to make. Now the, the cherubs, and, and that's actually a bad thing to say, <clears throat> so Cherub is singular. If we want to talk about multiple ones in English, we might say cherubs, but that's not right. The Hebrew way to take a cherub and make it plural is to add M at the end, so it's cherubim. So cherubim is just the plural Hebrew form for a cherub. Another angel in Hebrew is a seraph. And the plural, if you have more than one seraph, you have seraphim. So you may know the song, Holy, 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 and it's got the line, line cherubim and seraphim falling down before you. Um, that just means plural, cherubs. So the cherubs are made, and they're made looking down. Their heads are looking down, their wings are extended, but they're looking down below the mercy seat, on the mercy seat and below. Now remember, inside this are the Ten Commandments. And I hope this doesn't fall. If it does, it will probably crack the floor because this puppy is heavy. But inside are the Ten Commandments. So you've got the law. You've got the covenant relationship between God and humanity, at least the Israelites. You've got it inside. And on top of it, you've got the mercy seat. Now, this is important because every year on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of the Mercy Seat, and only on that day would the high priest go into the holiest part of the temple or the tabernacle, 
depending upon what era you are, pre or post Solomon. But only on that day, the high priest would go in. And the high priest had something very specific that the high priest did. The high priest would would dip. Let's see if if I've pulled the passage out of Leviticus 16. Here it is. The Lord spoke to Moses. After the death of two sons of Aaron... They drew near the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron, the high priest, comes into the uh, holy place. The only way Aaron goes in is once a year, he brings a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And he brings a ram for a burnt offering. He puts on the holy clothes. Okay, He takes a bath and makes sure he's as clean as can be. And then he takes two male goats for a sin offering. And first he offers the bull as a sin offering for himself... To make atonement, Kippur, for himself and his house. And here's how he would do it. Well, before that, and then he takes the two goats and he sets them in. And it explains how he does this, how he enters to make atonement, whoops, in the holy place. What he would do is he would go in and he would uh, approach... Take the, the, the blood of the bull, and he would go in and he would put it on top of the mercy seat. He had to do it seven times, the number for completion. But he's taking the blood of the bull, and he's putting the blood of the bull on top of the, the mercy seat. He is atoning for the sins of the people who live down here. With the law. So here we are. We're not keeping the law perfectly. We're not righteous on our own. And so some. The wages of sin. Are death. And so we are under the death penalty. We're under the death sentence. And it's not that God didn't warn us. He told Adam and Eve. The day you eat of the fruit is the day you enter into death. I mean, we live in an era of death. You know it, I know it. Our bodies die. Our consciences are, are constantly condemning us because we know we're not adequate. We sin unintentionally. We sin intentionally. We have anger that we shouldn't have, or greed we shouldn't have, or envy we shouldn't have, or lust that we shouldn't have. The desires that we've got lead to actions that are sinful. But all of that is what we know because God's given us a law and revealed to us what the holy requirements are. So the problem is something's got to atone for these sins. 
So if we look at that word Kippur, let me just give you a couple of examples. And, and, and by the way, the reason this is called the Ark of the Covenant is because Ark means chest. It's the chest that held the covenant. It's the chest that held the Ten Commandments. Remember in Exodus, maybe you don't remember, maybe you've never seen this, but now you'll remember. In Exodus, when God's explaining it, um, and God's with Moses, God says, this is Exodus 34, 28, that Moses was up on Mount Sinai with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights, that Moses didn't eat bread, he didn't drink water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, those go together. The Ten Commandments are the covenant, the words of the covenant. So this ark, this chest, held the Ten Commandments. So this is the ark or the chest of the covenants. Hence, why we call it the ark of the covenant. The ark that contained the Ten Commandments, which represented the covenant of God. So now if we've got the Ark of the Covenant and we've got the, the law that shows our inadequacy, what about this mercy seat, this kippurat, kippuret? What about it? Well, let me show you some uses of the word kippur. Um, here is kippur, which is another form of the word, in Genesis 32. That's where we are here. Let me give you the backstory to Genesis 32. So Genesis 32 is this. Isaac's got two boys, Jacob and Esau. They're twins. Esau's firstborn. He's a man's man. He likes to hunt. He likes to do all of this. Jacob, he's not so much what we would call a man's man if we have machoism in mind. He'd rather be at home. He loves to cook. He loves to do the things that, uh, uh, around the, the house. And so you've got... Jacob, and you've got Esau. And God doesn't choose the macho guy who's out hunting, killing the, the animals. He chooses the home guy who's uh, cooking the soup. The problem is Jacob is a deceitful little bugger. He's just like not real. He, he's, if there's a quick, easy wrong way to get from A to B, he'll take it over the right way. He tricks his dad into getting his brother's inheritance. His dad's blind. Jacob dresses himself up basically where he smells like his brother and kind of feels hairy like his brother and goes to see his dad. And his dad thinks it's his brother and blesses him. He steals his brother's blessing. He tricks his brother, in essence, or swindles his brother out of his inheritance. And, and Jacob uh, and Esau, sibling rivalry doesn't begin to describe their relationship. So after Jacob has swindled his brother, after Jacob has cheated his brother, uh, his brother says, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Uh, I don't want to do it with dad around. It'll break dad's heart. But as soon as dad is gone, uh, I'm, I'm killing that boy. And Jacob's mother knows this. So Jacob's mother says, you got to leave. So Jacob leaves 
and he goes to some distant relatives of his mother's. And with those distant relatives, he becomes a shepherder and he he becomes wealthy and he learns a lot and he has an encounter with the Lord and he truly changes who he is. And God says, it's time for you to go back because the promise is coming through you and you got to go back. And part of going back means he's got to face Esau with Esau's uh, tribal army, for lack of a better way of saying it. And, and Jacob is scared to death that his brother's going to kill him because that's what he remembered. So that's the backstory. And so here's what he does. Here's what Jacob does. He takes a present for Esau. And he gives him 200 female goats and 20 male goats. He gives him 200 female sheep and 20 rams. He gives him 30 milking camels with their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He hands all of it over to his servants, and he every drove by itself, and he says to his servants, you get out in front of me, put a space between each of your dro- the, the, the groups of animals, and then the very first one, when Esau meets you and says, who are you and where are you going? And who, who do these belong to? Then you say, they belong to your servant Jacob. But they're a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, Jacob's behind us. And then the second and the third and all of the other people bringing the other livestock. You say the same thing to, to Esau and say, moreover, your servant Jacob's behind us. And then why is he doing this? He says, he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I'll see his face and perhaps he will accept me. I might appease him. It's possible this is going to work. And maybe he'll accept me instead of kill me. Now the word that's translated appease there is mercy. Atonement. Not mercy. Atonement. It's translated atonement. Kippur. I might, by virtue of this ransom, atone in my brother's eyes and maybe he doesn't kill me. Let me give you another example of the use of that word atone. Here in the law from Exodus, we've got something that's very important. If you've got an ox and your ox gores somebody, then you're going to have to pay for it. But if your ox is gored before, you've got a well-known goring ox, and the ox gores again, if your ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and the owner knows it, And then the ox kills a man or a woman. The ox will be stoned. And its owner will also be put to death. Now, if a ransom is imposed on him, whatever he shall give for the redemption of his life will be whatever is imposed. In other words, you can kill the owner of the ox or you can assign punitive damages. That's the lawyer talking. And he has to pay him. You can say you're going to owe X number of dollars or shekels. And you've got no choice. That's the ransom. That's the atonement. That's the kippur. 
And so that's what this is. Now, here's the problem we've got. You can see this. You can see this, but if you don't understand where Jesus is in this, then you're going to have to come back next week for more detail because I can't get into it too much this week. But I don't want to leave you with just the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to understand that Jesus is there. You see, what happened is when you take that word atone and you're going to find it in Isaiah 6. I told you about the drawing, the painting we've got in the ceiling where Isaiah encounters God. Look at that in Scripture. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. He was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train is what trails behind his robe. And above him stood the seraphim, plural seraphs. Six wings, with two covered his face, with two his feet, with two he flew. And they were calling out to each other, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He's saying the following. I live down here violating the covenant. I live down here. My lips are unclean. I've gossiped. Say, oh, I'll be That's a sin. I've said unkind things. I've said things that aren't accurate. I, my lips have sinned. Woe is me because I'm in the presence of someone... Who knows not sin. That is absolute 100% purity. And I no more belong in the presence of 100% purity. Than ink belongs in milk. Even if it's just a drop. Then... One of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me. And he had in his hands a burning coal he'd taken with tongs from heaven's altar. And he touched my mouth. My sin. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for same word, Kippur. This is the atoning cover, Kippur. Now, here's the problem we've got. We've got a problem because I live under this cover. I live down in the sinful land. And so I need a ransom for my life. The, the wages of sin are death. God will destroy sin. 
We don't like that when it comes to us because we think, what a, a kind and loving God should not destroy sin. And we'll talk about this more next week. But oh, 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 that's so wrong. Because we know the other side of that. Because we know, we say, how can a just God let that happen? We just want to dictate where his justice lies and where it doesn't. But I got a problem because a just God cannot let me in his presence. I'm a sinner. So I just need a ransom. I need a kippur. I need an atonement. What's the atonement to be? Well, the Psalms tell us that when it comes to God, verse 7, truly, no man can ransom another. Same word, kippur, atone. No man can give to God the price of his life. The ransom of their life is costly. It can never suffice that they should live on forever and not see death. So I live on forever in the presence of God instead of the pit of hell. I don't have what it takes to pay that price. I just don't. And the priest would do real good going in once a year, the high priest, and putting the blood on top of here of bulls and goats. The problem is, bulls and goats' blood doesn't really atone and ransom my life down below either. And so, that's why we've got to understand that the ark is a reflection of the reality that we find in Jesus. Because here's the way Paul says it in Romans 3, 25. Look at this. This is an incredible passage. Paul has just spent two and a half chapters explaining that whether you're Jewish or whether you're a Gentile, you are condemned before God. Living under the... The Jews had the law. They had these instructions. They knew what their sin was. But even the Gentiles have natural law. I mean, we're hardwired with God's morality. You don't have to know the Old Testament to know you're a sinner before God. Everybody knows that we have a rebellious nature, that we choose to do wrong. And so Paul has made this point that everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs a ransom for their life or they are set to be destroyed. And so how do we get this righteousness if we can't live it ourselves? If we can't be truly righteous in the godly sense of that word. And that's where Paul reaches in Romans 3 when he says, There's a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from law. Any law, natural law or the law of Moses. Even though the law of Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament have borne witness to it. This is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for everyone who believes or has faith and trust. There's no distinction. All have sinned. Everyone's fallen short of God's glory. But everyone can be justified by his grace 
as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Look at that massive word. Hilasterion in the Greek. Propitiation. That is the Greek word for the mercy seat. If you were reading the account in Exodus in the Greek version of the Bible that was there at the time Paul was writing to Greek readers, this is not called a kephoret. It's called a hilasterion. A mercy seat, a propitiation. And the reason why is, what Paul's saying is, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that ever satisfied the righteousness of God and truly brought his mercy upon us. It's always been the sacrificed blood of Christ. Only the ransom of the Son of God is adequate for you and for me. The writer of Hebrews references this as well. And we're almost done, but stick with me because this comes to a very important conclusion. The writer of Hebrews talked about how the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place for holiness, a tent. And uh, uh, in the tent, you've got all of these different things. And, and ultimately, you've got the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides in gold with a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. That's the same word Paul uses, hilasterion. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, but let me give you a general idea, he's saying. The priests would go regularly into the first section and perform their ritual duties, but into the second, this holy area that had the Ark of the Covenant, only the high priest goes, and he only goes once a year, and he doesn't go without taking blood, which he's got to offer for himself and for the sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the, that the and, and we can get into more of this later, but ultimately what we have to understand is, is that Jesus, if we skip down for a moment, we can go into more detail next week, but Jesus entered once and for all into the true holy place. Not by means of the blood of a goat or a calf, but by means of his own blood and secured an eternal redemption. The blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God and purifies us from our dead works to serve the living God. I do want to get into this more, but the bottom line is, is we've got to understand if we're following this, that Jesus is God's mercy, just mercy. He truly is an atonement. Paul in Romans 3, if I'd had time to keep reading, and maybe we talk about this next week, Paul says, God, Jesus had to die. Even if the world were going to end immediately. Because God in his divine 
patience had overlooked the sin of everyone up to Jesus. Counting the blood as a sign, the blood of the bulls and the goats, as a sign of the ultimate blood that would be the mercy seat upon which God would look down and communicate and be with his people. So I want us to have a so what look before we leave, and here it is. I think everyone longs for acceptance and love. Not everyone has the blessing of earthly parents who show tenderness and love and care and compassion. But whether we have earthly parents or not, every human I have ever met has this strong desire just to be told, I know you and I love you. You are okay. And that's what we have if we get out from under the covenant and into the mercy of God's forgiveness. We have an understanding. I am okay. And I'm truly loved as I am for who I am. Doesn't mean God leaves us there either. He says, and and I'm not just going to leave you there. I love you so much, I'm going to help you change. But that type of a love and an acceptance is not only liberating, but it's transformative. And that's what we've got. So David uh, works with me uh, in in our library foundation and has a strong interest in in this class and other things. And he prepared, I want to give him the kudos, about an 18-page listing of scriptures and narrative and teaching on Am I Okay? And if you want to email us, info at lanierfoundation.org, we would love to email you this and let you have it. You may be interested in our class in an online relationship. Brent Johnson, if you will email him at wantmore at biblical-literacy.org. He can put you on our email list. You'll get our announcements, but you'll also get our videos. Uh, I do a video thought for the day each day. Janet Seaford on Saturdays does a mashup of those. And you'll get those as well. We want you to understand the love of God that exists and is thoughtfully planned for you and for me for thousands of years. Can I bless you and then we'll be basically done. Father, thank you so much in the name of Jesus for your blessings of forgiveness, of mercy, of ransom, of propitiation. Thank you that we are loved by you. And make that real to us as we walk under the sacrifice of Jesus. Through whom we pray. Amen. So next time you see Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe we'll have taken some of the misconceptions away. Don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Mary, and don't look at it no matter what happens.